before one pastor put it this way, you never see Jesus saying, watch out for all kinds of adultery um, because you don't wake up one morning all saying, oh, how did I get here in this bed? Um, but with money, it, it, it's that it really does have that dynamic. You know, how did I get in this incredibly greedy place? I didn't even realize how did this happen? Um, there's a story that I had on a piece of paper and I, uh, I didn't bring it, but I can remember it. It's a true story. I'll get most of the details right. So there's this chaplain of, I think it was the United States Senate. And somebody came to him and said, Pastor, I have this really, I have this really difficult problem. I, I used to make uh, $20,000 a year, and I had no problem tithing. Uh, you know, 2000 a year out of 20. I could do 2000 But I have a really big problem because now I make $500,000 a year, and I'm having a very difficult time tithing. I can't give up $50,000 a year. And the minister said, very thoughtfully, he said, yes, boy, that's a problem. Um, so let me, would you allow me to just pray with you for this, for this issue? And he said, oh, please, yes. And so he begins his prayer. He says, oh, you know, dear God, um, thank you that this, this gentleman has come forth with this problem. And, and um, he's finding it very difficult to give to you of what he has. So we ask, would you please reduce his salary so that he can tithe again? That's how, how money money works is that we in some way or another we it's a difficult and odd dynamic how this works and sneaks up on us is that we set our sights on something in life um, and for all of us it's different we set our sights on different things and we determine somehow inwardly sometimes without even thinking we determine that this is where the good life is if I have more of this if I excel in this if I can grab hold of this uh, and it's not even necessarily money it's usually not money but it's something that we set our sights on and we say that's where the good life is and then what money is, money just becomes a tool for every one of us, whatever that thing is. Money is something that we can throw at that, that we can leverage and try to use to get more of that or to get into that or to get to that place that we imagine is the good life. And so no wonder, since money can be that flexible in being used in our spiritual desires and cravings, no wonder Jesus talks about it more than just about anything else. It's, it's loaded with spiritual data and meaning, the, the way we use money, the way we view it. And this is also why that very dynamic is why it's much harder to do this thing that Christians talk about, and especially in the Old Testament is talked about as tithing, giving 10% of what you make, giving that away, sort of, and in the Bible, it's on the front end, you know, not making sure you've paid everything else first, but giving out of what they call the first fruit. So anyway, that's the biblical idea of tithing. The reason why that can, you know, gets harder and harder for this guy in this story, the more you make, is because... The more you make, the more money you have, the more you, you get convinced just out of sheer practice because now you have more money to leverage to, to try to get what you, whatever it is you set your sights on. So you've gotten more practice at using money for that and it seems more and more though smart, stewardly way of life is to put money over here and it seems to get, we just get worse the more money we actually end up having. And so um, a psalm that I think speaks powerfully, we're not going to go into it very much, but one that speaks powerfully to this issue is Psalm 62. And there's one little part in it that I love in verse 10 of Psalm 62, which says, though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. And then that connects, if you paid attention to this story from Luke, where Jesus says, where your heart is, there your treasure, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Though your wealth increase, don't set your heart on it. 
And the very, you know, the truth about it is, is that the this 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 retro vintage practice of tithing is um, diminishing in practice, and people are charting this out even statistically. You may have seen an article in the Sacramento Bee. I think it was a month or less ago, and it was all about tithing because one of our political candidates at the time is is tithing, and they're making a big deal out of this. Um, I won't name names, just don't want to go the political route because then I'll lose all of you. It, you know, as I do that, I lose myself even. So, but this is one of the quotes. Christians, and this is Jennifer Garza from the Sacramento Bee, Christians on average give 2.3% of their income to churches, a figure that has dropped steadily in recent years, said Sylvia Ronsvale, executive president, or vi- executive vice president of Empty Tomb, which has been tracking tithing and giving to religious organizations since 1968. So it's diminishing 2.3% or 2.38 versus what a lot of churches will say it should be 10. So we're feeling as a whole American Christians are feeling less and less compelled to let go of that much, that percentage of their income. Honestly, I'm glad. Honestly, I think that trend puts us in a wonderful place to experience what I think could be called, in terms of the Bible, the explosive, extravagant gospel generosity that's possible. I think that if the trend is doing a nosedive among most Christians, most churches, I think it's going to stand out even more strikingly when kind of generosity that flows out of the gospel and out of the pages of this book, when that kind of extravagant generosity randomly pops up in churches, as tends to happen, it'll even be more obvious and more stunning and shocking and those important questions of why will start to be asked. Because, think about it, careful, calculated religious giving, you know, 10% 10% exactly, is it pre-tax, is it after-tax, what, where do I, okay, so this carefully calibrated, calculated religious giving, it actually makes sense to us, it's kind of easy to understand, you say, well, churches, they don't want to go into the red with their budget, it's a good policy, we view it maybe as, you know, well, that's just kind of the rule of the club, and I want to be in good standing with the club, and so I want to follow the rule, it, it makes a lot of human sense, the carefully calculated giving. But then there's this extravagant gospel generosity, which is random and uncontrolled and not legalistic, and, and in the end, it ends up being very mysterious and difficult to understand. Carefully calculated religious giving is, you know, in a sense, it can be summarized by, I give hoping to get something or get somewhere. That's usually where it leads. That's the predominant place that leads. I wanna, I'm doing this in some way to get somewhere to get something. And uh, maybe it's even I, you know, a sense of like, well, I owe God a certain amount, and then if I do that, then in a sense, I'll feel like God owes me to answer my prayers. But then there's the e- extravagant gospel giving, which is I, not I give so that I get something or somewhere, but I give because I've been given something and I've gotten somewhere through God alone. One is easy to grasp, the other 
seems impossible to wrap our minds around. Extravagant gospel generosity. When it happens, when it springs up, when it, when, um, you know, put it in biblical terms, when someone sells a field <laughs> um, and brings the, the, the proceeds to the apostles' feet. That was in Acts chapter uh, 4, I believe. It's difficult to understand. People say, what's going on? I had a friend whose mother gave so much to the church and gave so much away that the IRS looked into it and was convinced there's something fishy going on here with all this charitable donations that, it, that she's claiming. This is what he told me, that they, they really kind of looked in, came in and looked in at everything. She was just, she had, she had a little flare-up of gospel extravagant generosity. Why? Where does it come from? And the answer has usually something to do not with myself, but with God. Calculated, careful, calibrated giving, usually has something to do with myself. Extravagant, generous, gospel generosity usually has something more to do with God. There's a a great old story that's told again by Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God. Helps us get under the surface of this. He says, Once upon a time there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. So he took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as the gardener turned to go, to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this and said, My, if that is what you, you can get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said thank you and took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, Let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. And that gets under the surface of what's going on here. In the Bible, this extravagant gospel generosity is difficult to explain. You look at the gardener and you say, why would somebody do that? Why would somebody uh, give their greatest uh, creation? They get, they get the, the best product of the thing that they're involved in making for a living and they get it and they, their thought is, I'm going to bring this to the king. It raises all kinds of questions. Why? Mainly why? Why would this person do this? Why would he come forward? And in the end, you you say, well, certainly, there must be something between this relationship of the king and this farmer that explains it. That's exactly right. What has the king done? What has the king done that this is how this farmer behaves now? And that's the exact same question to ask if you ever get the chance to see radical, extravagant, generous gospel giving. What has happened? What has the king done for this person that they're giving so much? And the answer will go along the lines of seeing a trend in scripture of how God, not not our giving, not the trend of what we're supposed to give, but the trend in scripture of God's giving. About how God, the God of the Bible seems obsessed. I know it doesn't, we don't come to church thinking that this is the true picture, but the God of the Bible is obsessed with each of you, each of us, knowing the dramatic 
riches, the, the, the abundant riches that he has made available to you and given to you. That's the, God is obsessed that you would have a sense of the riches already made available, already placed into your account, as it were. And um, that's how Jesus can say this in verse 32 when he says, um, and if, as you're following this interaction between Jesus and the disciples and he, he launches into this, these teachings, you can almost picture, right up to ver- verse 30, 32, you can almost picture the, the crowd just kind of going, like jaws on the floor. What? You can, you can live like that? That's terrifying. You know, all this talk about, about how to just not worry and life is not about all those things that you set your hearts on. And he says, as probably the fear is setting in in the audience, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. That's where it's all at. That's the heart of it. What has God done? And it's important to tap into issues, spiritual issues of fear because often our money is wrapped up and connected very closely to fear, to fears that we have as we go about life. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid might happen? And how are you handling money in a way that just just exhibits that fear just kind of if anybody saw it they'd say oh you're afraid of you know whatever fill in the blank and you're use, you know you're dealing with that with your money and, and money connects with your greatest spiritual fears um, and then if you if you can think about that then you can see how in the bible god doesn't expect that the way that the gift that we might give might deal with our greatest deepest spiritual fears he is obviously radically clear and obsessed with us knowing the gift he has given us deals definitively with whatever those fears were you just thought of as i was saying that what are you afraid of what, what, what's knocking around in your head and a lot of the time maybe even in this past week as you've thought about life and thought about how much you have and what you're going to do and where you want life to go. What's rattling around in there? And there's usually a lot of fear. Jesus says, do not be afraid, little flock. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. It's the gift that God has given that just definitively settles really our hearts and drives out all fears. That's the gospel. That when Jesus uh, was on the cross and when he was crucified and underwent all this suffering and died, that this was like, this was, we believe, a sacrifice, an offering of God so that we could be settled and our fears could be over. God took on a momentary division that, that was the most painful division to take on between the Father and the Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, said the Son to the Father, experiencing the greatest division ever as a gift so that he could not be divided but reunited with you. Now, the, the, the problem is that this doesn't sink in and we have to be around this for a long, long time. It's a lot of us are running around as if we're in a desert running around a well of living water and we just need to stop and drink of it eventually. It, it, eventually, that gift of God has to connect with your fears, with your real fears. And when that happens, don't focus on the money. Maybe the money is data. Maybe you, maybe you do need to give more just to, 
get more data and realize how untrusting and fearful your life is. And then as that data comes to the surface, apply the, the reality of the completely finished gift of God's Son for you to settle all your heart's desires and fears. That's the gospel. Very hard to grab hold of. It's much easier to look at a church that says, we are a church that believes in giving 10% away and all of our you know, people who come have to follow that principle. And we say, well, yeah, they want to make their budget and that's a smart, that's, that, that makes sense to us. Um, it makes sense to us to see a political candidate like in this article, being praised for giving 10%. And it, it, it makes sense to us. In fact, he'll explain, he'll explain even in the article, if given the opportunity, the reasoning behind it. I mean, it's right there in the article. The, the candidate says, the Bible speaks about providing tithes and offerings. I made a commitment to my church a long, long time ago that I would give 10% of my income to the church, and I followed through on that commitment, said the candidate. And hopefully, as people look at various individuals running for this office, they'd be pleased with someone who made a promise to God and kept that promise. It makes sense. It's, it's a, to, to remain in good standing with the church that you're connected to, to be able to point to that as being a committed person and, and clearly a valuable person to have in political office. That's easy to explain. What's difficult to explain is the radical kind of generosity Jesus is hinting at. It's, it's as if he's saying the church... Uh, the place where there are followers of Jesus, the people who understand God's riches and that the kingdom has been given to them, that's the place where the shackles of carefully calculated giving have been removed for good. And we finally get glimpses of the unusual, extravagant generosity that's possible. And that's what this whole text is about. In fact, just to give you a glimpse of that before I close, I have here a news clipping. This hardly ever happens, by the way, when I'm preparing for a sermon. This is a news clipping from the future. And uh, so I know it looks like, if, don't look, but I know it looks like my handwriting on a piece of paper, but this is the future. This is uh, a year from now. This article is going to be written. It's, it's pretty amazing. I'm never, I never have this kind of thing to end with sermon with, so I'm going to use it. Uh, this is a Sacramento Bee a year from now. Across the nation, the age-old practice of tithing continues to lose its grip over the hearts of Christian churchgoers. While employment rates skyrocket, homelessness statistics plummet, Bible-believing Americans give away less and less each year. One local megachurch pastor threw up his hands and lamented, we thought the new credit card swipe built into the, our new stadium seats would help us pay for the troop of clowns we hired to entertain our nursery ministry. But no, that was, I thought that was really funny, sorry. <laughs> funny part of this article from the future um, but I guess it wasn't that funny but no one tithes anymore we're at our wits end we'll have to lay off the clowns and the infants will be devastated can't people see that it's all about the children new statistics out this week show a steady decline with the average level of giving at about 1% nationwide researcher Sylvia Duncan says we have found a startling trend as well. Churches are reporting that around 5% of their attendees actually really think that part of a church service involves the church giving them money. But amidst this dilemma, there are recent accounts in random locations of an even more baffling trend. Some churches are experiencing unexpected levels of generosity, blowing past 10%, that continue to go unexplained. 
And these churches are resorting to giving away much more to local nonprofits and needs in their communities than they expected. A perfect example is City Life Church here in Sacramento. <laughs> Asked about it, Pastor Mike Polland said, <laughs> some of you will get that, that reference too. Pastor Mike Polland said, I thought for sure it was my preaching. But preliminary surveys have ruled that out. <laughs> One city lifer of recent, uh, at a recent service said, For me, it just came out of the blue. I started coming to City Life and one day realized I've been using my money to get an empty version of happiness. And what clicked finally is that God satisfies that craving better than anything money could buy. Another attendee said, I still give very little, but I'm getting intrigued that God's not standing around shaking his finger for me to give. I'm starting to see him as desperately hoping I accept his free gift, but I'm still scared about what it might mean to accept it. One woman said, my friend invited me to Easter 2012 to their 8.30 a.m. service. I fell asleep three weeks in a row during the sermon, so I started to read the Gospel of Luke at home, and I realized that this, the approval that I had been searching for in my job, in my boyfriends, in my possessions, my physical appearance, I was actually after the approval of God. And now, knowing that I live in God's approval through Christ, my money is extra. I sold my car, and I ride a Vespa now to work. The church used my offering towards a local food bank. Let us pray. God of grace, we do pray for radical gospel generosity, but just to intrigue those who see it happening so that people would ask why. What is going on? What, what is the nature of this king that they serve? What, is, what has he given them that they, so, that they look at their possessions and say, they say, none of this is mine. Uh, I don't even need it. It's secondary. It's a secondary issue. I have everything I need. Would you help us to have some of that? And would you start it um, with your Holy Spirit's work in making us understand your riches that you've given us? Help us in this, we pray, because we need lots and lots of help. Amen.